0: Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready, get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs, your hobby content alternative. It's Friday, and you know what that means. I got a conversation with two collectors who are bringing it, I got my mans, Josh, Chris, from the Card Ladder Squad, back on the pod. We go through a variety of topics. We touch on new update they put in their platform, Card Ladder Value, I think is interesting, has me thinking a lot about pricing cards that are in my collection that don't sell all the time and also a tool that I can use when I'm at the negotiating table in real life with someone selling some sports cards that I want a lot to unpack in this episode always have fun talking with those guys. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe button, leave a review. Most importantly, tell a damn friend that you're enjoying the Stacking Slabs podcast. Without further ado, let's kick it to the conversation. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. We have a fun conversation today. It feels like the last couple of weeks I'm bringing on my friends. Uh, We had Kyle from Wax Museum last week. This week, we have Josh and Chris from Card Ladder, back on the pod. There's a lot to talk about. They've got some cool stuff going on. Released a new feature that uh, my brother was actually breaking the news to me about uh, last weekend. So I'm excited to talk about that because I think it's something that can benefit anybody who's buying or selling cards. But of course, we typically like to talk about hobby topics of interest too. So we're going to just be all over the place. Without further ado, Josh, Chris, how are you?
1: Doing good, man. Thanks for having us on again. We're always excited to come on the show.
0: Same. Thanks for having us, bud. All right, let's start here. It, we we it's the topic that won't go away. We're not. It, it, it's such a monumental event. It's the national. There's so much fallout after the national. I think it. I'm still looking at my. I'm still appreciating my cards that I picked up from the national, which. I find fun and exciting. Um, I know you guys covered your experience and the YouTube. I'm I stacking slabs. Brett made an appearance in in the YouTube <laughs> video, uh, which, by the way, that was that's great stuff. I'm glad you guys did that. So maybe let's start there. Like the video series. Like why'd you do it? Like how did it come up? What were you trying to accomplish with that?
2: We didn't think there were enough camera crews at card shows, <laughs> so we wanted to fill a void. No, uh, well, we just had a different angle, man. Um, And this is the angle that Josh and I have always come from. It's like, we think more long-term, we're more collector-oriented. We wanted to make a video that forecasts and projects out uh, so that, you know, there's plenty of people making and capturing the daily experience and uploading the next day. And we tried to make a sort of documentary of the experience that will play and, and resonate a month before the 2022 national. So when people are getting excited and ready to go to the next national, the video that they turn to, to relive the 2021 is our take of it. And plus we have a super talented content creator slash video producer, director, editor, uh, which is Nick and his, you can uh, check his collection on Instagram at stiff arm wax. So that's kind of where we're coming from on it. I don't know if Josh has anything to add to that.
1: No, I I really didn't have much to do with it. People, have asked me about it and I say, wait for Nick to finish editing so we can upload him. I know we're waiting for the last couple episodes to come out soon.
0: So I, a couple things from the videos that I've seen so far that I want to talk about first, I'm going to say it just because I've been running this statement and I'm going to continue after watching that video. Ken Golden is the Vince McMahon of sports cards, like watching that video and watching him up there talking about like the show and that whole experience, like, I was just like, man, that was a hell of a time. It was just so much fun. Like, I don't know if I'll ever get to experience something like that again. So I don't want to talk about that because I was there. A couple of things that I wasn't there for. Maybe I'll kick this to you first, Josh. Like, I think it's super cool. Like, you, I don't think anybody else in the hobby was really able to bring to life like Nat Turner as like the human being, the collector, and not like this business guy who like runs the hobby right now maybe talk through that like obviously it was captured you can go to youtube and watch it but like talk through that experience of like Nat coming to the table like how did that happen like the deal that went down because i think like humanizing Nat as a, a collector like all of us i think is is pretty important um
1: yeah for sure i mean it, i think it goes back to my first interview with him where i i did I tried to do exactly what you say what you said which was trying to humanize Nat as a collector uh which is what he responds to the most and i I found that out this weekend or the weekend at National as well, which is that um, you know, a lot of people see him as this businessman, they want to talk about his money, potentially they want to talk about, you know, all the companies he's in charge of, et cetera. But what he really wants to talk about is cards. Um, so anyone that reaches out to him in any capacity that understands the depth of nineties cards in specific, uh, he's gonna respond to that and be excited about it. So, you know, when I reach out to a couple of years ago to interview him about it, he was excited to kind of just talk cards and not have to talk about business for a while. Cause he was pretty deep into his, um, you know, his career. And then now that he's, his career is cards full-time. It's the same. Um, every time I talked to him at the show, it was always like him kind of angling to get a new card. Like no matter what I would say to him, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, where's the next, uh, you know, Jordan Carter, whatever, come show me where the real good stuff is. Um, so he was less interested in, in like the business interactions and more interested in the you know what the national is meant to be which is the cards and that, was, that seemed like a rare a rare thing at the sh- at the show especially this year which is kind of depressing in my opinion like most people are uh you know of like the businesses and the flashing lights and the you know the big sales and all this all this stuff but there's still a pretty good contingent of people there that are just about the cards and uh so yeah i think he epitomizes that very well and he represents uh us business owners very well being a collector himself so you know i I really enjoy my interactions with him and it was cool to to be around him in person
0: something you said that stands out to me just in uh you have a relationship with him and the fact that nat was using that relationship to gather information and that information is where where are the cards like you you've been around here show me like that we would all do that that's like stuff we would all do and that's what we do every day so like that stands out to me um yeah and I love hearing that like just getting that context of and he's the guy like a majority of the hobbies investing a lot of money in what he's doing and i think i've said it a lot but just the fact that like he is a collector uh, he's a phenomenal business guy but a collector above everything else i think puts the hobby in a really good position chris i uh one thing about the video that i didn't i regretted when i saw it was the fact that going through the psa grading process on site, like watching like you with your brother doing that, like I was like, man, like I have so many cards that right now I would like looking back being at home, I would have paid like the $200 and it would make sense. And I just think to myself, like, why didn't I do that? Like was, was, was the experience is, is seamless and easy as it displayed on video.
2: Oh, and by the way, you do have to be a little bit crazy to pay $250 to grade cards uh period especially on site you know but uh especially when the cards being graded are a uh justin jefferson prism silver i get what it's his prism autograph card and then a rookie and then which was encased and then also uh bulbo prism gold <laughs> so but we did it for the content. We did it for the content. And Both neither of those cards belong to me or Josh or Christina. Those cards belong to Nick, uh, our, our chief content officer. So, um, we did it. And, uh, the process actually was, uh, very smooth, very, if you knew what you were doing, but you had to have a couple things in order. You needed to have a PSA account already. If you didn't, you could sit at the computer and and set one up, but you know, that could take time. And so they only had a few computers. So like you're waiting in line. Um, that's going to, that can be a long line, but I already had an account set up. I just used my account. We got Nick's cards pushed through pretty quickly. It took about 10 minutes, I think from sitting down at the computer until we dropped off the order form. And it's probably not terrible that they did have a bottleneck in the, in the flow at that point, because I think they had to shut down submissions they became overwhelmed by submissions like within a day or two of the national so even at $250 a card and and uh, let me say two things really quick if, if for those who are listening if they don't know how to watch the videos they're on the card ladder YouTube account if you just YouTube card ladder go to the card ladder YouTube account you can watch the national videos there two parts have been released and then second nat released through PSA's website his 100 favorite cards that got graded by PSA at the national, and oh boy, are there some absolute grails on that list! So PSA was busy, and they were busy grading some of the hobby's best cards. I
0: I need to see. That's I saw it on Twitter, and I was like, I gotta watch this. So that's a good reminder. I gotta ask you, how did the how did the Justin Jefferson and the Bull Bull grade? How did they end up?
2: Okay, so this episode is gonna come out on August twentieth, Friday. Uh, yes, 20th? yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. uh, Because it was a cliffhanger from episode two to episode three. What were they going to grade? But okay, so look. So the Jefferson was a redemption that came encased from Panini. Never touched, you know, the hand of a collector outside of whoever handled it at Panini. And it got a PSA 9. All right. So the Jefferson got a PSA 9. And the Bowl Prism Gold got a PSA 9 as well. So back-to-back PSA 9s. Uh, Also, uh, Josh graded some things on-site as well. Uh I don't know. I yeah. think I think he did, right? I'm scrolling
1: through Nat's list and I don't see him yet. So hold on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know the Bobo Prism Gold
1: didn't make the cut either. Uh, what's well, going on, I thought, like, I thought the one that he he graded the the 24 karat gold Teddy Hardaway for me and that
0: uh, so I'm like trying to find it. I don't see it. Didn't you grade that on site and you've made a trade? Yeah I already traded it away. <laughs> yeah what the heck Matt? I didn't even make your
1: top one hundred
0: man Josh, talk about your experience. You made, you graded a card and you brought it home. Like what was the whole, uh, you've made a move. Like what, talk us through that. Um, I saw a
1: raw 24 karat gold Penny Hardaway. Those are numbered at 24. They're extremely shiny. Like the surface is uh, gold and, and very, very shiny. I've always wanted one of those. I've never had one before and I bought it it's raw at the show. And then in my hanging out dealings with Matt, I was like, Hey, we just grade this right now here he said like, yeah well, i'll just take it for you and we'll grade it and then uh he hand delivered it back to me the next day and he got a psa nine wow and i was like dang this is a card that you know it's a pretty old card and you don't see nines from this stuff very often uh but not good enough to make his top 100 so oh and then i yeah so then i came home um and uh i was talking to a friend who i knew had to penny hardaway pmg championship which used to be my card i own that once upon a time like i actually graded it as well and went through the whole drama of like uh dealing with fakes for pmg championship and so that card has a lot of meaning to me i don't know why i sold it but i did so i basically traded on the 24 carat and some cash to get it back so those are that's the little swindle there the little move
0: yeah you're f- you're feeling the nostalgia i feel like you you've you, you like turned a corner and it's like back to penny hardaway again what was Was it seeing that card at the National? Was that, did you go in wanting to revisit Penny? What was it?
1: I think it was like seeing all my old friends in person who are just collectors because we've been so bogged down with, you know, the business side of things and sort of the market side of the hobby to like see everyone in person who I used to collect with, uh, specifically the Penny Hardaway stuff like Grant, Slayton and Jake Roy who collects Penny. Um, Brian Wells, who's a big time penny collector, he runs shit, my Cards. So seeing those three guys and, uh, seeing some of the cards in person, I was like, man, I need to get some Penny Hardaway cards, you know, back and get that collection going again. My, I've been too focused on LeBron.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, and Chris, if it makes uh, stiff arm wax feel any better, I had an encased 2003 Peyton Manning finest gold X-Fractor that I bought on eBay. Uh, this is a year or so ago. Um I sent it I it was encased, I cracked it. Um, I sent it to PSA, PSA wouldn't grade it. So then I sent it to BGS. BGS slabbed it up but slabbed it up with the altered. It was altered. So I'm still trying to make sense of how an encased card that I bought came back altered. I don't know if have you heard or seen that happen before? <laughs>
2: it's just it can be something as simple as uh the card came off the the presses in a size that doesn't fit the parameters that the grading companies have determined it should be it could be something as simple as that it could just be a factory cut that is a little too big or a little too small and uh that can trigger the uh altered designation which is odd because it sounds like the card definitely is not altered
0: yeah and and it uh I don't want to sit up here on my podcast and talk about my cards, but it's to me, I like, when I got it back, I looked at it and I was like, I'm never going to sell this card anyway. So it does, does it really matter? The only thing that really pisses me off is like the blue label at the top, but you move on oh. from it. Yep. The blue labels piss me off so much. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I it's, mean, from that era too, man, you have cards, the variance, the tolerance that was allowed um, when manufacturing those cards, is, is just larger, and so you have natural variance in the in the dimensions of the cards, the, the the length and the width of the cards, that you know falls outside of what some of the grading companies have determined are supposed to be the specifications for the the measurements of the card. And uh, but they're definitely not altered. They're just that's how it came uh, straight out of the pack or straight out of the uh, the encased uh, one touch.
0: Totally. Um before we get off the the topic of the national, I'd love to hear just like so much happened uh you guys were you know very busy jumping around you you know had a booth, you're probably trying to spend time being collectors too, looking at cards you observed a lot, you created content like what would your what was your like primary takeaway like two weeks out as we're talking from just being at the national like what are, what are, like, what is something, a thing or two that st- stands out to you from, from the show about what happened or maybe where we're going in the hobby? Maybe start with you, Josh. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of this at every show, so it's kind of the theme of every show for me, but, like, the hobby is really
1: built on two things and two things only. The cards themselves and, like, seeing them, understanding what they are, you know, learning the history of them, and there's no better place to see more cards in a shorter amount of time than at the National. And then second, it's the, you know, the relationships you have with the other collectors and meeting everybody. And seeing them in person makes a huge difference. So for the shows, it's all about just, uh, you know, meeting everybody, seeing everyone in person. because You just can't replicate that online and on Instagram. So it's always those two things. And National is just to me, like, the the peak of both of those things. So it's it's really like the best event of the year, and it's not really that close.
0: I don't know if it was you. Maybe it was. Were you... Were you advocating for the fact that the national should happen not just once a year but twice a year? Was that you guys? That was Chris. It
2: probably was me. I probably said once every month.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I think we would. Uh, I think it would be fun, but um, we might all be broke
2: and exhausted. What were your? Ta- what's your takeaways? I just had a blast. It was a blur. I can't believe it's over. I wanted to like savor the moment when I was there because I knew that it would be over before you even had a chance to take it all in. But still happened anyway. Was there till the very last minute on Sunday. Um, <laughs> just just soaking it all in. And I I had the luxury to do that because I live very close to the the uh, the convention center. But uh, what a great event. You know, one thing I've heard people talk about on Clubhouse, on Instagram, I heard Yamwax mention this, some other people mention this. They got the chance to see in person certain cards, even certain genres of cards for the first time. Yamwax was mentioning it was the first time he'd seen 90s inserts in hand, and he said, oh, now I understand why people are so amped up about Mm -hmm. these. Uh, Another friend of mine, uh, Jordan, or uh, also known as uh, Fat Snacks Cards. Uh, got to see exquisite in hand for the first time, and said you know it's one thing to see scans and pictures of it it's It's a totally different thing when you really see those cards in hand for the first time. So I think that's like kind of an a, an understated part of the national experience is that people were like seeing whole genres of cards in hand for the first time and suddenly understanding them like like in ways that they maybe didn't before. so that was a cool part of the national. I mean, I don't know, man. I think there was such a high from the national. And I think there was like, a, oh, I'm going to say something a little salty. There was a a natural filter of the people who went to the hobby are people who are, for the most part, really happy and excited and love the hobby. And then there was people who stayed home who just, some of them just don't love the hobby and they just didn't want to be there and they didn't want to have to see everybody and they didn't want to have to spend money and go to a hotel and put up with the crowded masses, you know, cause cause they're in the hobby for other reasons or their, their intentions aren't so great. So like we filtered out a lot of the, the bad actors and then you just, what's left over is just the people who just love the hobby and we're having a great time. So like there, it was such a great gathering of people, the people there were amazing. It was, it was just an absolute blast, dude. It was, it was amazing. And I, th- I think the, 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 Goodwill that it engendered among everybody who went spilled over to social media. I think everybody sort of caught it. It was it was contagious. And then I, I think everybody's still riding high. The people who were there were all still riding high off of the experience. And it's it's definitely turbocharged everybody to lean into this next season of sports card collecting. The National has always been that. It's always bisected the year and it's always acted as the turning point. It's the new fiscal year and the hobby begins every time the national comes around. And I I think more so than ever this year, it, it helped us turn a page, recharge our batteries and uh, hunker down for this next year of collecting.
0: I totally can relate. And I would say this, just, I know what you mean about people who were there, the positive vibes, people who weren't. And I would say, you know, I think like pro- you're probably saying like, not like if you, there's not, it's not like a black or white thing. Like some people probably couldn't go to the show because you're busy families and whatever's conflict. But there are people who are, could be, you know, pretty vocal on social media and then they're just not there. And then we're all trying to enjoy our time post-show and those people continue to be vocal and continue to be
1: negative. Even some of the people that, uh, do lean into the drama online i felt like didn't do it there it's like seeing people in person you just are less likely to bring up the crap and you're just you're more empathetic and friendly in person and you're not just gonna like walk around being like calling people out and to their face like there's just less of that i think people that are on instagram that are not at the shows are like hoping that happens that people are screaming at each other and fighting and you know calling people out all the time it's just not happening as much uh, as you might think so you know, again, just like being in person is is more, it's more humanizing. It's more
0: fun. 100%. I want to ask you guys this, because this is something I think about all the time. And I, I I say this and understand, like, I know not everyone can be like a hundred on like positive, like I'm like, feel like a kid again at the hobby. Like, I understand that. Like, that's not everyone's situation. We're spending our time in the hobby away from, you know, well, maybe not for you guys work, but like most of us are spending our time in the hobby away from life stresses. Like I want it to be a place that I can go enjoy conversations, get to know people, enjoy some cards, learn um, and I want that to be a positive experience, but like there's just people that just can't help themselves, and I don't know if it's um that's just how they're wired, um if it's a uh you know a jealousy thing, if it's uh, I'm just you know, I don't like this person. Like you guys have been in the hobby a lot longer than me. You've been in the message board worlds. Like h- how do you summarize it? Like what it, what is, how how do, we, and I'm not trying to recommend, like we're trying to make convert everyone to be like so positive, but just like, h- how do you summarize? Like why people operate the way they do? Like, what is your experience in dealing with those individuals?
2: Uh, I'll I'll jump in first. Also, let me add a point of clarity to what I said before i I also want to be super sensitive to people who didn't come to the national for health related reasons or for COVID related reasons. Let me not get carried away uh there There are certainly were legitimate reasons not to go, so I made an over general, generalization, but uh forgive me for that. anyway, uh moving on to this topic here. You know one thing I've noticed, Brett, and I've gone through this as well uh when people are new to the hobby, they bring an enthusiasm and an optimism that is infectious. And that maybe people who have been in the hobby for a long time should lean into, and they don't always do that. And, uh, and that's tough. And I find myself straddling the fence right now between being the bright eyed new optimist, you know, having been the hop- back in the hobby a little over five years versus being the curmudgeon grumpy, get off my lawn guy. I, f- I find myself straddling that fence and oscillating between points of view and I feel myself drifting more and more into the grumpy guy mode sometimes, <laughs> which is not good. You don't want to be there. And the, but then I look at all the enthusiasm and the optimism of new people coming in, and, it, and it's good and it's infectious and it, and it should be. So I think you know to psychoanalyze a little bit. I think that uh, some of the people who are very entrenched in the hobby have done very well. They don't have any. They can rest on their laurels. You know, they they're not. They don't see any reason to go out and. Uh, extol the hobby's virtues, and 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 they they've already done extremely well. So they just you know sit back and enjoy the growth of the hobby, and then they can just complain, you know, because guess what? If the hobby shrinks a little bit, they're they're still completely fine. And you con- contrast that against new people who want the hobby to grow, and they want they want to share the joy of what the hobby is, and and they want to you know make their name and make their mark. And so there's competing interests there just point blank. They're just, and there always will be. And, but I think what happens in most cases is the optimism and the positive outlook carries the day and it wins and it prevails. And, and, and guess what? The curmudgeon boo hoo, more people came into the hobby. Your collection value went up even more. Oh man, it must be so tough to have all these new people in the hobby. So I, I am, I think it is, that is the side that should win and should carry the day is the positivity. The only flip side to this discussion is that sometimes there are bad actors in the hobby. And, and this speaks to the hobby vets who have been around for a long, long time. Sometimes there are bad actors in this hobby. They know about them. They've seen their BS go on year after year after year. The hobby does have a problem of sometimes being a little too much blue skies. Every glass is half full. And when somebody does something wrong, it should get called out. I'm not saying that uh, it's a death sentence to have done something wrong. People can change their ways. They can learn from their mistakes. They can make amends. But we need to definitely hold people accountable and we need to stay firm in our value systems and we need to self-police. We need to self-regulate. So that's the only flip side to that coin is that when people are doing things that are bad, it should be called out. We should not become mobs and, and, and we should not run wild and, and get carried away. But when people do wrong, it should be called out. It should be acknowledged. The person who did wrong should have a chance to make amends, to correct their behavior. But also now there's a note in their file, so to speak, that we should all be aware of. So that's the only flip side is that some of the vets, they have much better insight than some of us newer guys on all the shenanigans that have gone down over the years in the hobby. Gosh, yeah. yeah. Chris covered a lot of it. There's always been positivity and negativity
1: in the hobby. Uh, there's just There's just a lot more of both right now. Uh, there's a lot more positivity in, you know, the market going up and everyone making money, and getting excited, new businesses popping up, new content, all those things. And there's also a lot more negativity. There's more drama. There's more people doing bad things because there's more money involved. There's, there's just more of everything. But I mean, going back to blowout, there was there was lots of negativity on there, but there was also lots of a lot more. Uh, there was also a lot of positivity back then as well. There was a lot more showcasing of collections. I remember on blowout than there is today. But now we have Instagram, you know, and so everyone has their own platform to show off their own cards at any time they want. So it's just, uh, you know, it's a lot. There's a lot of senses going on, a lot of drama, a lot of positivity. You just kind of have to find the balance yourself. You know, you can't really rely on everyone else because otherwise, if you try to consume everything and try to be this perfect person in this sea of everything, uh, you're just going to overwhelm yourself. So, you know, trying to find your niche within the hobby, trying to find your community, you know, like Brett, you're you're posting a lot of the wrestling stuff right i think you've found your own little niche within this already niche thing and it's making you happier right because you find something you like and you find people who also like that thing that's like what communities are are based around so finding your niche i think is kind of the the advice i would give uh towards you know all this craziness but like chris said you also still have to you know be involved in the accountability aspect of it to a certain extent, because otherwise, if we don't, then it's just going to get away from us and this whole thing will be taken down. So we have to do our part. Uh, You know, we have to do the bare minimum at least to hold other people accountable. Otherwise, we're all going to lose this thing.
0: Some really strong perspective there. Uh, I didn't think we'd get into like this serious talk right out of the gates, but I think it's good. It's good to have these types of conversations. Let's dive in a little bit to just kind of what you guys are working on. I think um you know, I've you know, everyone who listens to the show knows I, I use Card Ladder regularly. It's a tool that I find helpful. Um, it continues to be helpful. Um, you guys just released uh, kind of the CL value, which it was like when I saw it for the first time in the platform, I was like, oh, there's a change here. And then, like I mentioned, my brother kind of educated me on it. Um, as I've had a week to kind of try to, gather an understanding about what this is, how it can be used. Um, I think it's helpful. Like my use cases, I think it's helpful for me because not a lot of cards I'm buying on a regular basis are liquid cards. Um, Most of the cards that I'm purchasing or I'm interested in are cards that, that don't sell that often. And we're in this tough position when you're making uh offers on cards that don't sell too often it's like well i really want this card like what do i pay for it like what is the expectation and so i think like from me gathering an understanding of what you guys are working on i think like i personally can use card ladder now to maybe better inform purchasing decisions that i'm making on cards that don't sell every night on ebay that's kind of how i've gathered my thoughts around it but maybe talk about what you guys released. But before you do that, I'd love to just like get some background on like the why
2: behind it. Sorry, I to unmute. <laughs> yeah, uh, good. That, well, your use case, Brett, is, is one of the two primary functions behind the new feature suite. So the, there's, there's two elements to the feature suite. Uh, the one is that now every card in our database, every card going forward in our database will not only display its all-time sales history but it will also display what we're calling CL value or card ladder value. And the way that's calculated is simply you take the last sold price of the card, it could be a year ago, it could be 2 days ago, and you plot it against the total market index for that player. In other words, an index that en- that encompasses every card in our database of that player. And then the the way that that index moves from day to day is projected onto the price of the card in question, and so hey, if the, if if Carson Wentz's market index is up 10% since the last time the card in question sold, then the CL value is going to say that that card is up 10%. Not a perfect metric by any means, but that's the nuts and bolts behind it. Uh, and so the and then so why it was, it was why do we do this for the two use cases. The one you described, which was trying to price rare cards, and so if you want to do that, probably the quickest or way to do that. If, you're, if it's a card that's in our database, just go to the card's profile and you'll be able to see the CL value. But if it's a card in our database, but you'd like to reference a different comp, or if it's a card that's not in our database, but if it's it's of a player that is in our database, just click this little button along the left-hand menu called price check. And you go to price check and, you, and within 30 seconds, all you do is just enter in the player's name, enter in the comp, and enter in the date of the comp, just enter in those three things, and the price check is going to perform that same calculation I just described, tying a card's price to a player's total market index is going to perform it for you. And then it's going to explain to you exactly what happened, exactly how the math works out. And it's going to give you a, a, it's going to spit out a price projection. So like, let's say it's a Carson Wentz and we, in the last Prism Gold we know was sold for $2,000 six months ago, type in Carson Wentz, type in the price, type in the date of that comp. And this is going to tell you, Hey, if the Carson Wentz Prism Gold is moving the same way that his total market index is moving, then here's what it's worth today. So that's that's one of the use cases. The other one is we have lots. Can I, can of, I
0: say something on that yes. real quick? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would just on the Carson Wentz front, there's one PSA ten out there, and I wish the seller at the National was selling it for two K, but he he's not. <laughs> and so I'm gonna I'm gonna I thought now would be a good time to beat him down with the injury news, but um, there's no budging. So. May, I'm hoping I can use Card Ladder to better inform him on future negotiations.
2: Good luck, I you know, best of luck is what I'll say on that, and I hope that you do land the card. Uh, but Prism Golds, that's they're their own beast. Okay, so the other use case uh, would be we have lots and lots of Card Ladder users who use Card Ladder primarily to track the value of their collection. And and we have lots and lots of users of Cardlighter who are in the same position as you, Brett, who have rare cards that are not super liquid. They're not frequently transacted, and so we're not really doing them a huge service. I, I think we're helping them if, if we display the last sold price as as the current, you know, comp. But in some cases, you're talking cards that are haven't sold in two years or three years, and and it's it's it it's laughable. To for them for insurance purposes or for whatever their purposes for tracking the value of their collection, it's laughable that comp from two or three years ago would be in any way, shape, or form the current market value of the card. So we give users the option they can either use last sold for the purpose of pricing the value of their collection, which we have the last sold data. They can put in their own estimate of what they think the card is currently worth, or they can use the card ladder value. And using the card letter value hopefully is helping people get a little more accurate insight on what the what their collection is worth at any given time.
0: What, what kind of feedback have you guys got so far on it? Um,
2: a lot of people
1: that I've talked to like it for the just to put a number on something, like especially the rare stuff. And at the sh- I was using it at the show, which is like the main use case for me. That was before we launched, so only I had it, so I was cheating. But the national, it was nice to just like see a card come across the table and then not only see what it last sold for, but just put a number on it based on, you know, it sold in January and we're in August. So like, it just didn't make any sense for me to try to guess in my mind. So just like being able to put a number to it was helpful. So I've gotten a lot of feedback around that aspect of it. Some of the negative feedback is just like on the cases where the BGS 9.5 math will work out where it's higher than the PSA 10. and. Chris and I have both seen those instances and uh, we may have to come up with something to adjust for that, but that, that case is really the only one I've heard the negative side. I don't know if you have any other
0: others, Chris. Well, Chris didn't, didn't the, uh, the Giannis gold BGS 9.5 sell for higher than the PSA 10.
2: Ah, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Uh, that's that, that, that example is memorable only because it's so contrary to what the market normally bears, but yes, uh, in April, um, the BGS nine five, which is a pop five of Giannis's Prism Gold, sold for over five hundred k. And then, about a month and a half later, the PSA ten, which is a pop two, also sold with golden for a little over four hundred k. So, the BGS nine five did outsell the PSA ten. Somebody might push back and say, "Yeah, but the BGS nine five was the first copy of this card to sell in years." And then the PSA 10 comes right after, so lost some of his momentum. Yeah, but I would say, yeah, but the PSA 10 pop is only two. The 9.5 pop is five. I think it's a wash. I think we can actually give Beckett a victory on that front. Beckett won that one battle. But Josh is right. It's not only with, like, BGS 9.5 versus PSA 10s, you know. um, It can happen also with, like, you can even see weird situations where, like, a PSA 8 will be projected higher than a PSA 9 and the only thing that i can say to that at this time is that's what the data bears uh that's just what the data bears and and so it's very possible that somebody overpaid for that psa8 and then we're stuck with this comp that's that's inappropriate uh for trying to project prices but we don't interject our subjective opinions on it we just don't we we can only do what the what history and what the math say should happen but if somebody comes across that situation, you know. we give you the list of the all-time sales history, pick a different comp, uh, pick a different comp, run it through the price check feature and see what that bears out as well. You might get a different result using that feature. But that is true. That does happen sometimes. You will get counterintuitive or just straight up nonsensical results from time to time. And I, I don't know how to address that at this time beyond just saying that's what the math and the history say. Hell, I've had
1: two or three people send me a screenshot of a card they own where the CL value is less than they would like it to show, right? Because they, <laughs> they want their cards to be worth more. Who doesn't? And my response is usually like, well, it's better than the last sold, which is like a thousand dollars when it sold four years ago. At least it shows 50K.
0: That yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, there's more I want to get to in this conversation, but let, let's close it out on this uh on on this topic with I am a card ladder user. I am at a show. I got my app up. I'm doing, I'm I'm looking at the value. Someone's got a card in my showcase. Have you guys thought about like how, how the communication for somebody who's aware of this feature and is using it regularly to a dealer who might not be using card ladder and might not understand this feature? Like, have you thought about like that conversation between the the buyer and the dealer like how to navigate that um, I just love your thoughts because that that was one thing as I was thinking about it that was running through my head
1: that interaction to me is the best use case for this feature by far because when you have a dealer and a buyer it usually just like staring at each other waiting for someone to give a number and I think if they're both aware of the feature and uh, they can at least like look at it together and say like here's what Here's what the market says based on last sold relative to player index, et cetera, et cetera, assuming it's a card that we have the player index for. And if they can at least use that as the baseline, because the first question between the two people is what was last sold? Okay, we have that data point. The next question is like, okay, what has the market done since this last sale? So we can try to determine is it higher or lower? And usually it's like, well, what did his what did another card of this player do, or what did a similar player, uh similar card from this set do? Let's look at those comps we're just doing that math for you on the fly across thousands and thousands of cards very, very quickly. So it just kind of gives you that number to say, talk you through that conversation. So I think that conversation is exactly what we were going for with this thing.
2: Yeah, Josh made excellent points there in a certain sense. It doesn't necessarily do our brand a huge favor to put our, to stick our neck out on the line and put a value out there because nine times out of 10, one person's going to be more favorable towards the value than the other one, <laughs> even though it's not our value. We're just, this is just math. The methodology is spelled out. Nine times out of 10, one person's going to like it more than the other. So one guy's going to say, yeah, isn't card letter great? Let's, uh, let's use this technique. The other guys going to be like, oh, card letter is terrible. Who could use this? Don't use this. So like we're taking a risk, right? Like in business, you don't want to uh, take a side, right? You, you would like to try to appease everybody if you can. But I don't think that really serves the interest of the community at the end of the day. I think you ultimately do have to say, look, here's a method and here's the result. And it might not be great and people might not love the result, but it is a result and here's what it is. So I, you know, I, I think like the last time I did a deal at a show, it was for it was for five figures. And so those type of deals you go slow, you take a lot of time. <laughs> and, and and every and you price stuff, you know, because like the deal involved me paying cash and trading cards. And so like eight or nine cards had to get priced out. And uh, we sat there, we were looking at last sold and we were going over comps and we were thinking about how the market has moved lately and so forth and so on. And the discussion probably took about an hour, the negotiation. And I think that's good. I think people, when they're negotiating, they should be very calm. Both people should have an idea in mind. Both people should be able to walk away if they don't get to the point that they want to get to without any hard feelings. And if, if the card ladder value feature, if it can introduce another layer of analysis, another layer of dispassionate thinking, objective thinking, if it can introduce a data point that, that might be interesting or it might not be, might be of use or it might not be. Because at the end of the day, last sold is not uh, forcing anybody to pay a certain price. Last sold is just a data point. And if, if the buyer doesn't want to be at last sold, and the dealer's willing to come down from last sold, then guess what? That card's going to sell for less than last sold. And that happens all the damn time on show floors. And with rare cards, the exact opposite. Last sold might be X, but the buyer is willing to do 2X, and the dealer wants 3X, and maybe they meet in the middle of 2.5X or something. So card letter value is just trying to give you another data point. It, it's not, it shouldn't take precedence over last sold. It shouldn't be seen as superior to a comp. It's a projection, but it helps. And to be frank, when I've do, been doing deals for the last year or two, and Brett, you know, you and I have talked about pricing cards. This is the manual method that I would go through. I'd be like, look, here's how I'm trying to price this card. Here's how this other card has moved. It's sold on the same date as the card we're trying to price. If the card we're trying to price has moved the same way the more liquid card has moved, then here's where its value would be. We've just taken that and we put it and we turn it into software. And so hopefully it's helpful. Hopefully it's instructive. Hopefully it leads to more sober, dispassionate discussion around pricing cards. And it's just another data point or another tool that somebody can use to hopefully reach a consensus and reach a deal.
0: That's what I like about uh, innovation in the hobby. And what's encouraging is I feel like I've seen more innovation in the hobby in the last six months than I did in the first six months that I've been here. So, that was on full display at the national. I definitely want to hit on some topics here before we close this out. The first one is man, have you guys noticed LaMelo Ball in your Instagram feeds at all this week?
1: <laughs> so, oh, something happened.
0: Yeah, right. So, I'm beginning to think we're entering the LaBel, La, LaMelo Ball era of the hobby, the national treasure. You got Kyle who's got the tracker up of the patches. I mean, geez, it's been nuts. So, uh, it's going bananas and I had to reflect back and I was like, man, okay. So before this, it, we had this stagnant period where it's like prices were going down and it was kind of like the hobby depression in a way. But before that we had kind of Kevin Durant, like I'm going to put all my money in Kevin Durant because the nets are going to win the shift. And before that we had like the goat era of like, I don't care if it's what cards they are. I'm going to pay 10 X the value for these Kobe LeBron, Michael Jordan cards. And then 2020 was like junk slab era, hashtag invest. We all know the story there. With all of these different, I mean, there's probably more eras inside many eras inside those eras, but with all of those things going on, all those mainstream things that spin everybody up. Like, do you guys like, are these, are these like, are these moments good for the hobby? Are they bad for the hobby? Um, I just I I would love your perspective about. All those things that are that are going on where everyone gets spun up, and it seems like that's the only thing people can talk about
1: mm. um it feels like it's good for the hobby in the sense of you know garnering interest and getting people more involved and keep the discussion going. um I feel like enough of these though it's gonna start to be bad, like if people if players aren't signing cards anymore uh allegedly, or you know there's more patch swapping or if this stuff. Like eventually, there is a breaking point where like people aren't going to trust the market anymore if there's this much going on, especially from our you know major companies like Panini and PSA and things like that. Um, it's good in small doses and it's good in order to generate interest, but oh man, a lot of these—I don't know how much, how many more of these we can take. To be honest, <laughs>
0: I I felt the I felt that this week with Lamella Ball, and I was just like, are, are we working? We're about to get into another one of these. I could be totally wrong, but that's just what it feels. Chris, what do you think?
2: Well, I think there's still some sorting out of information that needs to happen here. But what it kind of looks like right now is both LaMelo Ball and Miles Bridges had different looking signatures two years ago, even a year ago. And then they both happened to converge on their signature being an M and a B. There are subtle differences that people have pointed out to me between Miles Bridges B and how the final stroke runs in a different direction than Mellow Ball's final stroke. But uh, Miles Bridges certainly didn't help matters when he posted to his Instagram story that him and Dip have the same signature. He just adds a zero afterwards, which begs the question, how did you two end up with the same signature you two being teammates who also have to sign a lot of cards, which is probably not a fun process. How did you two end up with the same signature? How does that... Because both you guys' signature didn't look quite like this a year or two years ago. So is, how does that it, come to be? Is this Lulu 2.0? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is, this, is a, this is definitely Lulu 2.0, but it's of a different brand. Um, because uh, in that case, there's this mystery of, um, you know, is there a, is there a mystery signer and why is the autograph looking different and changing? Why is it sometimes so much cleaner and other times it's more scratchy it's loopy. Uh, but this, this topic here is you have miles bridges posting to his Instagram story that they have the same signature. He just puts the number zero after his, and it's like, why do you guys decide (laughs) to have the same signature? Like what, how, how possibly could this have come to be? So and then you know to throw on to that as well you have the memorabilia piece of the nt card which is not player worn it's not event worn and it's not game worn in other words it's just a piece of cloth and so <laughs> i mean look this is the absurdism that we've reached i think we we reach a lot of different absurd points when just in life right like uh like uh there have been Musical albums put out that are only white noise. It's just taking the concept of music to its avant-garde extreme. In uh, investing, we have cryptocurrency derivatives and NFTs that are squiggly lines. And uh, maybe I'm showing my ignorance here, or maybe I'm just speaking some good old-fashioned common sense. I think we've taken investing to its absurd conclusion when uh, squiggly lines are worth five and six figures. But then you know we've reached an absurd point here. In the hobby as well, where we have cards selling that I don't know what the first Lamello NTRPA is gonna sell for. It's gonna be strong. A lot. A favorite. lot. And and it's very it's it's plausible that the card has Miles Bridges autograph and a piece of random cloth from a footlocker uniform inside of it. <laughs> I we, we have just we're reaching new extremes, new absurd points all the time. I wanna know why people don't don't care about the Lamelo ball
1: thing, because especially when that product first comes out the scenario that most people partake in that they would like to play out is that they join a break the breaker gets them the little mellow ball rpa the breaker sends it to bgs for them then bgs ships it to their uh vault and then they sell the card they don't even touch it they don't even care they just want to break it they want to upgrade it they want to sell it and they want to make money so i mean if, who cares about me? I never even get to. I'm not, I'm not collecting it, so what do I care?
0: One hundred percent. And and for what it's worth, like I feel like he gets he doesn't get talked about enough because the Lamelo Ball mania is running wild. But I'm an Anthony Edwards guy. Like I'm an Anthony Edwards guy because I like his promos, I like his personality, and I think he. I know he's stuck in Minnesota, and I know if you're you're a Timberwolves fan, this means no disrespect. It's been stagnant there for a while, but. I think Anthony Edwards is the type of guy who can bring that organization up. So I haven't seen a post about an Anthony Edwards RPA. Maybe I'm missing out.
1: i am about to look up his auto. Is his auto better on the RPA?
0: I'm sure it is.
2: Dude, shout out to Anthony Edwards for sure. He's, he's extremely talented. And he's got that, that, that personality too that uh, could really become an object of fascination. And he could, he could become a huge star. If all, the, if all the stars align, he could become a superstar. There's something else to something else worth mentioning, kind of in the Lamelo Ball era and this this NTRPA fiasco, because it 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 certainly seems like we're just moving away from everything that collectors would seem to value: authentic autographs, unquestioned autographs, memorabilia pieces that are at least touched by the player, preferably game worn. But here's a thought experiment that I'll put forward, and I'll tell you how I think it would play out. What if somebody took a LaMelo ball RPA fresh out of a pack, verified on Kyle's LaMelo ball RPA tracker, this is the card, and then they went and they bought at auction a LaMelo rookie year game-worn jersey, they cut out the most beautiful patch, and they put in a real patch, all right? And then they went to a practice of the Charlotte Hornets, and they waited uh-huh. outside with this card and they wiped off Miles Bridges alleged autograph and they had LaMelo Ball sign the card with an inscription full name beautiful autograph would that card which has been tampered with now and it's no longer in its pack pulled form would that card sell for more or less than one of the pack pulled other 98 NTRPAs of LaMelo Ball and i would say that i bet that one of the pack pulled ones would sell for more than the one that was uh, upgraded in the way I just described. This happened. Someone
1: did this with a Steph Curry. They like knew Steph Curry. They got a private signing with him. They swapped the patch and they got him to sign it. And that card is completely tainted. Nobody wants it. I think he still has it, if I remember the story correctly. And I think he's, you know, he realizes like he can't even try to sell it because he'll just get shredded, you know, if he tries to sell it.
0: You, if you want hobby content out there, someone who whoever pulls the lamello ball one of the 99 go do that like i'm sure you can get a sponsor you maybe you can get the lamello paid. i'll tell you what maybe if it's you get the inscription as bbb like the big baller brand logo and you have Ooh. uh you have the father uh sell it, le, 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 what is it lavar ball yeah you have him out there slanging it put him on qvc or something the man sign it too get yeah. the owner on there there you go. Now, now we're, now we're thinking a um, couple more topics I want to get to before we close this out. One, yeah, I just jump in
2: All right, just very quickly. All right. So here's my spin. All right. Here's, here, here's why this, I'm going to turn this into something that supports my full, philosophical view of the hobby. Uh, to me, I think the hobby is, and always will be about brands, about hobby history, And about the importance of cards as cards, not because they bear memorabilia or they bear an autograph. I could go on eBay and I could buy a Lamella Ball autograph for a few hundred dollars. I could go on eBay or I could go to NBA auctions and buy one of his game used jerseys for thousands. I'm not sure how much they sell for, maybe even tens of thousands. But his NTRPA will sell for more than either of those items. Because it's the, the thing that gives the NTRPA value is not the autograph and it's not the piece of memorabilia inside, although those things do matter thing that gives the ntrpa value is that it is the ntrpa it is part of the lineage of ntrpas that goes back to exquisite rpas uh, that even goes back to the late 90s the very first game jersey autograph cards so like that's what gives that card value and and you know we keep bastardizing or taking for granted the autograph and the memorabilia part and like we shouldn't do that we should still take those very seriously in an ideal world ntrpas would have Game used memorabilia, and they would have unquestioned, witnessed autographs that we could go look at a video of at any time. That's what we should strive for. But the thing that gives those cards value, and the reason why cards that have no memorabilia and no autograph, like a Prison Black one of one, the reason why those have such insane value is because they are coveted, they're part of hobby history, they're part of key brands and key products, and those things override memorabilia or autographs. It's 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 really all self-contained. It's all about the cards, it's all about the hobby. I just wanted to make that
0: point. Yeah, no, good good point of clarification. Brand matters and certainly the lineage does. Want to hit really quick the uh grading topic from a national perspective, you know, undeniably SGC slabs were prevalent. Obviously they're grading cards right now. People are trying to sell those cards. I just saw a lot more SGC as a matter of fact, I bought an SGC card um which I was totally not expecting, but it was a gold Michael Pittman Colts prism card in an SGC slab. Bought it from a friend. I've got the slab now. I look at it, I'm like, "You know what? Like I'm not going to sell this card, so like does it really matter what slab it's in?" Um I'm thinking maybe a little bit differently about SGC. I'm not quite there yet, but I would love to get your guys' perspective on just SGC, their, their presence, uh, the market, their reaction to it, anything you're thinking or saying.
1: I'll start. I, I really like their presence to start. I think um, you know they're, they're really trying to get their names and faces out there, which I think is great in this hobby. They are like Peter, the president, is just very vocal about what they're doing, and he's, he's very easy to approach and, and speak to if you have questions about SGC. So having like a, a face to put to a, a company like that is very important. So I really appreciate that about them. I am noticing kind of what you are, Brett, right, where they're definitely gaining some traction, especially in terms of uh, you know filling that that void of like grading at a reasonable cost and getting it back quicker and being able to sell it. Like that's a that's definitely a, a part of the hobby that's needed that people you know reach for. So I think they're filling that void very well, and I think their slabs look they look nice. So I mean, if you like SGC and you like to look at their slabs. The only thing holding them back for me is just the pop report it's just the um it's just not having the the history of the pop report built up long enough because me as a as a collector I like to know uh like the gem rates uh you know actually have some have a have a longer history of value to say like oh this is only gemming ten percent of the time out of a hundred versus out of you know ten to twenty it, it it makes a big difference for a collector and they'll get there over time uh they just they they're not able to like cheat time travel and like get there right away so
2: i like the steps they're taking to get there slowly i like the
0: perspective chris
2: i mean i think it's abundantly clear that we need additional grading services in the hobby like it's abundantly clear psa can't handle its enormous 10 plus million backlog who could bgs can't handle its backlog both of these companies have had to shut down with the exception of like the highest service levels. And now PSA is open like a mid tier service level, but it's still cost prohibitive to grade the vast majority of cards with PSA or with BGS. It's excellent that the company that is stepping up and is able to provide services at this time is SGC, which has um, a, a tremendous, you know, lineage in the hobby going back decades. Uh, so they're not just like, coming out of nowhere. They're not just a new new upstarts, which which I think is good. It, it lends credibility to them. And the other thing I like about SGC, they don't mind rubbing elbows with the community. Um, SGC will, you know, its president will be standing there greeting people on the national floor. They get involved with content creators. They, you know, are, are, are you know, I mean, I remember when Josh interviewed Peter from SGC for the first time and uh, it was just, it was amazing that Peter was willing to Go in front of the hobby community, take the questions that Josh organized and pose to him. And then Peter, to this day, credits that video with with turning a page, turning a corner for SGC. So I I just think SGC has always kind of understood the community aspect of the hobby really well. Uh, There's a lot to like about SGC. And, you know, look, I mean, again, I come back to the fact that we're at a point in this market where clearly we need somehow, some way to provide reputable grading services to the to meet the demand and, and PSA and BGS at this time are not able to do it. And it looks like SGC is able to step up the plate and take some of that demand off of the market. So I think that's a good thing.
0: Maybe we'll see one of those Lamello ball uh NTRPAs in an SGC slab. What do you think about that?
2: <laughs> I don't think close- that, do you do you want to touch that one? I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let let's close it out here. And I can't believe we haven't even touched it because tis the season. I'm gonna be Walking into Lucas Oil Stadium on Sunday to see Chris's guy, Christian McCaffrey, uh, probably not play since it's preseason, uh, but we're, we're here, football's going on. Of course, I've been talking about football the entire year. Some things I'm observing right now, like, uh, Josh, you mentioned this, but the Patrick Mahome's rookie ticket like has become unattainable. Um, Josh Allen's market is exploding um guys like baker mayfield there there's a ton of confidence in a guy like baker mayfield because he got a couple of playoff wins at the national like it was football mania like i know the season's right around the corner but i was not expecting the football that i saw there you guys are in it every day what what kind of things are you seeing right now and and just what what, what is your perspective about just the place of football cards in the hobby right now
1: i mean we can- We've seen this coming for a while now, Brett, because like football is by far the most popular sport in this country. And this country, you know, is the largest collector base in the world. And the more and more people that come into the hobby without like a specific hobby background or just like a sports fandom uh, background, then they're going to gravitate towards football eventually. Like, you know, especially with all these young quarterbacks who are so exciting. Every it seems like every team. <laughs> minus minus a few has at least something to be excited about in the future with a young quarter younger or a quarterback who's already established i'm, I'm trying to think of a team that doesn't so i apologize to those fans out there redskins redskins uh maybe the raiders don't have like the most exciting
0: there's not very but,
1: many yeah but if you think, go down the line it's like every team has something to be excited about so because of that you know there's always going to be optimism in the off season and that's that's where we're at right now the preseason leading up to this to the season getting started and fans are excited and optimistic and they want to get cards of their quarterback and their favorite player. So I think it's great to see. I think it's fun. I think it's, you know, you were asking, is the the drama good for the hobby? This is the thing that's good for the hobby is, um, you know, fandom people getting excited about their cards. Chris looking to buy new McCaffrey cards because he's excited about his upcoming draft. Things like that are really the number one catalyst to like getting things going.
0: I love it. Chris, take us home on football cards.
2: That's it. Football reminds me of collecting Michael Jordan inserts back in 2016. Prices are eminently affordable for the guy that I like to collect, which is Christian McCaffrey, which makes it a lot of fun and not so stressful. Uh, Football, I think a football is collectible by anybody, even if you're not a huge football fan or football is not your favorite sport. or You've never collected football cards before. I'll tell you something. Panini the, the guys who work there that I know, they love football. They put so much passion into their football products. Their football products are tremendous. There's a lot to love from a collector's point of view and a sports fan point of view in football cards. Football cards are great fun. There's plenty of affordable levels to get involved with them, even with great players. And uh, it might not always be that way. So enjoy one of these last little, little slices of the hobby. That is still you know relatively affordable when when I can pick up the grails of my guy Christian McCaffrey for extremely reasonable prices i I love it it's fun it's enjoyable, and uh you know if you're not collecting football, give it a try you might you might like it yeah we're this guy we're in the second inning of
0: football <laughs> we are, we are we are in the second inning of football. this guy over here stashing and hoarding all the gold christian McCaffreys he's going to have them all before it's over with. <laughs> All right. Well, Josh, Chris covered a lot of ground. Everyone go check out Card Ladder. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the conversation as always. Talk to you gentlemen soon. So much goodness in that one. Always have a good time talking with Josh and Chris. Go check out what they are doing. Go check out that YouTube page. I am enjoying those videos from The National. Take care of yourself. Take care of others around you. I will be back next week. More stacking slabs always. Peace!